So while those are going back, if you're here and you haven't been with us in the past few weeks, for three weeks now we've been walking through a short series as a local church on church leadership. Okay, Today will be the close of that series and we're about to dive into what the Bible teaches about deacons in the local church. All right? And I want to tell you on the front end, our, our, we're going to dig into some details here, some intellectual things that you need to understand, but we're going to press straight past that as a local church. And our aim today is to respond to what we're about to see laid out in the Word. We want to listen, and then as a local church, we want to respond to God's truth. But I want to tell you something before we dig in. This is, this is something that I was just reminded of a, a minute ago. I'm happy in Jesus today. I'm happy in Christ. And I, I want to say something that many, if not the majority of people in this room could say. My favorite place to be, okay, is with the people of God singing praise to God. That is, I love that. I love that. I know you love that too. I want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I, I'm full of gratitude for that. I, I, I count myself humbled and full of gratitude to God that I can be with the church, with the people of God. I want to tell you something though that I was reminded of that just takes that gratitude and just pours gas on it, like gas on a fire. And I want to read one verse to you in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to share something with you that God reminded me of. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to read verse 14. Verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And if anybody's reading it already, I am not giving you the wrong reference. Okay? It's the right <laughs> reference. Alright, here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Some of you are thinking, what are you doing, bro? Okay. I want to remind us, listen to this now. We need to know this. You need to know this more than intellectual. You need to know this in your soul. This verse tells us something about the nature of sin, the true nature of sin. And here's what I mean. We know, we know that Adam and Eve both sinned in the garden. Amen? They both sinned. That verse tells you clearly something about Eve's sin. It tells you that her sin, there was a measure of deception mixed in with her sin. Well, we don't often think about this. That verse also tells you something about Adam's sin. It says, he was not deceived. Okay? And here's what you need to understand. That in the garden, the sin that cast the entire human race into condemnation, the sin that plunged all of creation into futility, this man, the man of dust, had his eyes wide open and he knew exactly what he was doing. Okay? And he rises up in rebellion. The man of dust rises up into rebellion. And he tries to dethrone the king of glory. It's like Adam rises up and spits in the face of God. Okay? You have to see sin as mainly vertical. Okay? You have to see it as mainly vertical. It is rebellion against God. And everybody in this room knows Okay, we know something about the nature of Adam's sin from that verse. And everybody in this room knows that God the righteous judge would have been perfectly just to take that man of dust and crush him right back into the ground where he came from. Okay? But we are here today, and I was reminded of this, that God the righteous judge, He could have crushed them all, He could have crushed all of us. 
But God the righteous judge delays His judgment. And then He begins to pursue His rebellious creation. And He becomes the God of grace. God the Redeemer. Okay? And this story plays out. And God sends His own Son for rebellious ones like us. We are rebellious ones before God. Enemies. And God sends His Son and slaughters His Son for enemies like us. And so the thought that I had, I was reminded of that this morning. And the thought that I had is we as a church, we are actually experiencing grace from God right now. Right now in this moment. That we are the ones that should have been crushed into the ground. But God ripped us as brands from the fire. We are brands plucked from the fire, from the burning. Amen? And then, and then God breathes out this word. God speaks this word to His rebellious creation. And we have the words of God. We have the word of God in this book. And we get, as the redeemed ones, we get to sit in this moment. And we get to gather together, sing praise to God. And then we get to give all of our attention to these words from God. And not one of us in this room are worthy of this. I love that. That makes my soul happy in Christ. That we're experiencing grace right now at this moment from God. And so what would that look like if we just approach the Word of God in this way with, with humble and gratitude? Okay, And we want to do that today. We want to hear God's truth as the ones that have been redeemed, called out from this world. The ecclesia, the church of Jesus. And we want to hear God's Word and we want to respond. Okay, That's what we're going after today. So let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we come today in the name of Jesus, Lord. And thank you, God, for reminding us of that. God, thank you for those songs that we sung. And we just say, Amen, Lord. It is right, God, that all creation would rise up and bless your name, Lord. And we, Lord, as your people, God, we want to worship you, Lord. We want to love you more. God, we ask... Today, Lord, that you would draw near to us, God, as we seek to draw near to you. We ask today as a local church, God, that you would grab our attention with your truth, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would birth something in this church today, God, that would bring you glory. Lord, teach us how to think about the things that we're about to study in your word, Lord. God, guard us from error. Guard us from inattention, Lord. Help us to lean in and listen to you as brands plucked from the fire, Lord. Thank you for your church, God. Thank you for surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us your ways. Lord, teach us your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, we're going into deacons today. Alright, deacons. And as we approach this topic, I want to encourage you not to check out. Okay, I understand that might not be number one on the front burner of you know sermons that you'd really like to hear. I'd really like to hear something on deacons. But I want to encourage you, don't check out on this. And I, and I want to keep saying that because I know, I know, I've talked to some of you that have almost unbelievable stories of distortions of deacons in the local church. You know, whether they're uh, drunkards beating their wives and they're deacons in the local church or they're local politicians running for this office to try to pull some sway in a small town community. I understand that. I understand that. But I want to encourage us as a local church not to have reaction doctrine. Okay, Not just to react to things that are wrong, but have the mindset to lean in and allow God to teach us His truth. Okay, And this is what we're going to do today. We want to look at what the Bible teaches about deacons, about this role. And then we want to respond as a local church. Amen? Alright, let's do it. 
In the intro, I'm going to set this up. I want you to listen, okay? I'm going to set this up, and I need to tell you something about the Word that's translated deacons. And this is going to help us get to where we need to be. Instead of one passage today, we're going to walk through two. Two for one, all right? We're going to walk through Acts 6, and then we're going to turn around and walk through 1 Timothy 3. But before we do that, I want to tell you about something about this Word. The Word is diakonos. Diakonos, diakonos. I want you to remember that. You're going to need to, need to listen to it in a minute. It's a Greek noun used 29 times in the New Testament, and it's used in three ways. All right? I want you to be aware of this. This word can refer to literal servants. Literal servants. And you see this in the Bible in John chapter 2. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Many of you remember this story. And His mother, Mary, looks to these servants, the diakonos, okay? And she tells these men, these servants, literal servants, do whatever He tells you. Okay, that's John chapter 2, verse 5. And then in verse 7, Jesus looks to these same men, these servants, these diakonos, and He tells them, fill the jars with water. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus turns water into wine at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. So there's, there's the reference there. There's the first way that this word is used in the Scripture. It means literal servant. But here's the second way. It can also mean spiritual servant. And you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. I want to read this to you. Listen close. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, diakonos, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now that verse is not talking about literal servants. It's talking about servants of God. You see that? It could also be used to refer to servants of Satan. They're spiritual servants. So you see, literal servants, spiritual servants, and then we're going to dig into the final use here. And that, and three times in the New Testament, it is used in a very specific way. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the first. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, diaconos. Okay, do you see that? And, and let's go ahead and get the other two. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, diaconos, likewise must be dignified. And then again in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own household well. So here, it's different. Okay, In these three instances, we see this word, and it obviously refers to a very specific office in the local church. It's used side by side with overseers. Okay, So you have a distinct office here that's pointed to. But here's the interesting thing. Here's the thing we need to scratch our heads over a little bit. These are the three places that the word shows up in the New Testament, but... None of these verses that we just read really tell you anything about what these men are supposed to be doing. Okay, They tell you the qualifications of these men. We find out from these verses that, that this office exists, but it doesn't spell out the kind of service that they're supposed to be rendering. And I want you to think about that. Okay, A lot of people would come down this way, that, that God gave us an office in His church and he, and he didn't give us specific ways that this office was to play out. So uh, the, the local church is not under bondage. We have freedom in Christ to, to distribute the duties of the deacons as we see fit. I, I don't see that. I don't, I don't see how God could give us an office in His Word, okay, side by side with overseers, and not tell us what they're supposed to be doing. Okay? 
So the, the obvious thing here, you, you either got to land one of two ways. Okay? Either God gives us an office and doesn't tell us what, the, what these deacons are supposed to be doing, or we need to go somewhere else in Scripture for light from God's Word about what these men are supposed to be doing. And that's where we're going this morning. We're going to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And I want to tip you off on the front end that the word for deacons is not used in this passage, but, but a very similar Greek noun, diakonia, is used twice in these passages. Okay, So we're going here for a reason. This is not a coincidence. Alright? Either Acts 6 teaches us what deacons are supposed to be doing, or God gave us an office without giving us light about what deacons are supposed to be doing. We're going for the first. That, this, is, this, is the, this is the prototype. This is what deacons are supposed to be doing. So let's read this text this morning. We're going to read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Here we go. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles... And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Alright, this passage is going to answer two questions for us this morning. It's going to answer what these deacons, who these deacons are. And then it's going to answer for us, what are they supposed to be doing? And we're going to dig into that. So I'm going to pull out four or five, about five points from this passage that we just read to answer those questions. So here's point number one. Alright? Point number one from this passage. The Jerusalem church was a growing and a giving church. And you see both of those in verse one. They were increasing in number and there was a daily distribution. Let's hammer this first. They were a growing church because this is the type of church that we need to aim, okay? That we need to aim to fall, to replicate, to fall in line with the church at Jerusalem. They were a growing church. Alright, we know that because we just read it. They were increasing in number. But this is nothing new for this church, okay? This local church in Jerusalem, they had been growing in this way for years at this point, okay? They had been rapidly reproducing for at least two years. By the time we read this text, I want to remind you of this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41. On the day that this church was born, established, on that day, God added 3,000 members to this church in one day. Now that is quite an impressive church plan, right? One day, 3,000 souls added to this church, right? 
So it comes out of the gate and God is saving people in Jerusalem and gathering them into a local church. Then, in Acts 2.47, this continues. Acts 2.47 tells us that you have these 3,000 and then God still, He begins to add day by day those who are being saved to this Jerusalem church. And then Acts 4, verse 4. Uh, let me read this to you. It says, Acts 4, 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So it's growing. Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6, they're increasing in number. And I just want to ask you, how? How are they growing? What's the obvious implication of what's going on in these verses? And the reason that they're growing is this Jerusalem church is a picture of a zealous church to get the gospel out into the city. They're preachers. They're preaching Jesus all over Jerusalem. Listen to how this is described in Acts 5.28. That verse tells us that they filled an entire city with the gospel. That's what the enemies of the apostles told them. You are filling Jerusalem with your teaching. Okay? This church is extremely bold, extremely zealous in the mission of Christ, and God is adding, God is growing, God is increasing their number. And we need to be like that, okay? But the Jerusalem church is not only growing, they're also a giving church. And you see that back in Acts 6.1. They are taking care of the widows among them in what is known as the daily distribution. They are feeding, they are taking care of widows among them. Alright? That word there is the diaconia. The diaconia is similar to what we just read a minute ago. Okay? Keep that in mind. Come back to that in a minute. This is a giving church. It's a growing church and it's a giving church. The giving in this church is nothing new. This had also been going on for several years at this point. Okay? In Jerusalem church. Listen to Acts 2, verse 44 and 45. This church loved Jesus and one another so much... That this verse says that they counted all things in common. They counted all things in common. All their possessions that they held in common. And then it says, They were selling possessions and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Alright, that's Acts 2. They're a giving church. They're marked by gospel preaching and generosity. Listen to Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then listen to this. This is an amazing statement in the Word of God. Acts 4, verse 34 says this, There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among the church in Jerusalem with 5,000 men. That's a several thousand member church with zero, not a needy person among them. And why? Why is there not a needy person among them? Because they believe the prosperity gospel and God's making their bank, all their bank accounts fat at one time? No. They are selling and distributing things. They are, they are marked by generosity. And they are taking care of one another in love. And this is the mark you see here. Okay? Radical gospel preachers and radical generosity, the church in Jerusalem, they are marked by two things that are often separated. Okay? The mission of God and mercy. Okay? They're marked by both of these. We're not supposed to divorce, divorce these things, according to Scripture. That's the pattern that we want to go after as a local church. So they're trucking along. They're, they're, they are pursuing along. And then point number two on your outline, a twofold problem emerges. Okay? 
in the middle of this church. It catches them like a blindside. It's a twofold problem. And I believe that this is a satanic attack on the church in Jerusalem. I believe that. The first thing that began to happen was there was a sin that began to manifest itself. It was discrimination and partiality. And widows in this church were being neglected on the basis of cultural bias. Okay, The Hebrew-speaking Jews were, 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 not, were being partial uh, away from the, the Greek-speaking Jews, the, the Hellenist Jews. And so what you see here, this is, this is a wicked sin. This is a wicked sin in the church of Jesus. This is actually an ancient form of racism in the church. Discrimination and partiality. Okay? You see that here. They're trucking along, they're trucking along, and then sin manifests itself. Okay? And Satan, that's not Satan, that's us. That's our sinful flesh. Okay? We're, every one of this in this room is capable of that. But I believe that Satan enters into this situation and he desires to manipulate it. Listen to this language. According to verse 1, a complaint arises in this church. And that word is literally a murmuring. A satanic grumbling begins to arise in this church. And what he's trying to do here is he is trying to use this sin, this racism, this partiality. And he's trying to, to use it to produce a deep division in this church. And he wants to rip the Jerusalem church to shreds. He wants to rip them to pieces. Okay, So this is a huge, serious problem in Acts 6 that comes out of nowhere at this church. they got sin in their midst. Satan is stacked against them. And he wants to rip this church apart. Okay, Then the second problem. I told you it's a two-fold problem. The first is that widows are not being fed. Widows that God loves. That are close to God's heart. Their needs are not being met. This is a massive problem in this church. And then here's the second part of the two-fold problem. The leaders in this church, in this passage, are in danger of being pulled away from the ministry of the Word of God. And you see that in verse 2. Now, the Word of God being neglected by leaders in a local church is a dangerous, it's a very serious problem. Because it will kill the church. It will kill it. Okay? Listen to this. Widows, if they are not fed physical food, they will die. Make sense? They will die. The church is not fed spiritual food. It will die. It will die. This is the problem here. The apostles, the leaders, they're so convinced that it would be morally wrong for them to leave the ministry of the Word to serve tables that they say, this is not right if we do this. So you have this problem coming in. And what's beginning to happen is that the load is beginning too much for these, for these church leaders to handle. Okay, And two things are happening. They're being pulled away from the Word of God and widows are not being fed. And neither one of these things are acceptable in the church. Something has to happen here. Something has to give. God is not willing that widows go with their needs unmet. And God is not willing that church leaders be pulled away from the ministry of the Word. So something had to be done. Something had to be done. And, and you see that. And, 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 and point number three on your outline. The solution that they came to in this problem was that they appointed they appointed servants in the church to take care of this daily distribution. You see this in verse 3. Look at this. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Alright. I want you to see this. A new, distinct, 
body was added to the church of Jerusalem in verse 3. Okay, That was a new office that just got added to the church. A new distinct body. And this was the prototype of what would eventually be called the office of deacon in the Word of God. Okay, If you don't like that, then just go back to what we said earlier. Then we got an office in the church and we don't know what to do with it. Okay, This is the prototype. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Let's hammer down a little bit about what these men, these seven appointed men that they brought to the church, laid hands on them and appointed them to this task. Let's talk about what they are not Okay, first. And then we'll talk about what they are. These men are not. These men are not of equal authority in the Jerusalem church as the leaders. They are not appointed to an authoritative office. They are appointed to an office of service. Okay? You see that? That's, that's what the word means. But, but listen to this. Because sometimes you can come right behind that and there can be some distortions and some real dangerous, unhealthy downplaying to this office. They're not in a position of authority equal to the leaders at the Church of Jerusalem, but they're also not in training for leadership. They are not elders in training. Okay, The office of deacon is not JV, and the office of overseer is varsity. That is not what's happening here. Okay, That is a distortion of what's going on. They are not leaders in training. These men are not secretaries or assistants to church leaders. Okay, They are appointed ministers in the local church, office bearers. All right, That's what they're not. Let's talk about what they are. These men are appointed servants of Christ. They are appointed to an official office in the church of Jesus. These men, they're not assistants and secretaries. They're men full of the Holy Spirit. These men are full of the Holy Spirit. And they are appointed to a ministry. A real ministry. This ministry is separate from, but complementary to the, the ministry of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Alright? And we're getting a little bit closer, but we still need to put some meat on these bones about what are these men supposed to be doing? Yeah, but what are they supposed to be doing? I understand all this. I understand they're in this appointed role. I understand that this appointed role is, is, is highly esteemed by God. I understand that they're not authoritative leaders in the church. But what do they do? What do they do? And I want to dial in on two phrases in Acts 6. These men were appointed to the, the daily distribution... And these, that's verse 1, and these men were appointed to, in verse 2, to serve tables. So I want to I dive into both of these words. And I want to tell you, I personally have been greatly helped in, in my understanding of what these men were appointed to. My view of deacons, even in the past two weeks, has went from here, okay? And, and I know it's in the Word, and I know, I know these things are glorious, and then it's got exalted because I believe that God has shown us in His Word the glorious ministry that these men are called to. And I, I want to unpack this for a minute. I want to unpack this. Let's start with that word for distribution. Okay? I've already told you once, that word is really similar to the Greek word for deacon. Okay? The diakonon are appointed to the diakonia. Do you see how similar that is? They're, they're, they're right there together. Okay? It's the Greek noun. And if you st that, that means service. Not servant, but service. Now, if you study this word... Just go look at the occurrences in the New Testament. This word has a very sharp focus that terminates in not just needs in general, not just service in general, but it terminates in a very sharp focus of meeting urgent, physical, tangible needs. Okay, And I'll give you the best summary of this in the Word. Matthew 25, 
Verse 44, listen to this. Matthew 25, verse 44. says, Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister? Diakonia to you. Okay? And, and that just gave us massive amounts of help. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Okay? That just gave us massive amounts of help of putting some meat of what these men are supposed to be doing. So here's what I, here's what I want to tell you. The deacons are appointed to a ministry that looks like the following. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, reaching out to the stranger, serving the sick, and helping prisoners. Did you catch that? That's some meat. That's some tangible things that these men are supposed to be devoted to and going after. And another way to say that, another way to say that, is that they were appointed in the church to serve the poor and the needy. They were the appointed servants of God to serve the poor and the needy in this church. And how exactly are they supposed to be doing that? How exactly are they supposed to be doing meeting those urgent needs? Let's focus in on that second phrase in Acts 6, verse 2. They were appointed to serve tables. Okay, you remember that? Acts 6-2, they were appointed to serve tables. Now, at first, that might sound like these men are appointed to serve at bread tables and that the church of Jerusalem is running basically like an ancient cafeteria and they're cranking out loaves of bread every day and passing it out to these widows and these men were appointed to serve in that way in the kitchen. Okay? And that's, that's a legitimate interpretation, Okay? But I, I, I want to sharpen this. This Greek word, it can that for tables here, it can also mean bank. That's exactly how it's translated in Luke 19.23. Jesus said, you should have put your money in the bank. Okay, that's the same Greek word for tables. In fact, when Jesus goes into the temple, and y'all remember when He turns over tables, same Greek word, those are the tables of the money changers. This is an ancient form of a bank. Okay? So I believe a better interpretation to Acts 6 is that these men are appointed to the money table. They are appointed to a ministry that distributes the resources of the church to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. Okay, This is putting some meat on this. The distribution of the resources to the poor and needy. These are the men in the local church that are supposed to be making the money of the church do what it's supposed to do. They're supposed to be the men appointed by God to make sure that the resources given to the church are used in the highest and best way. And when I started to see these things in Scripture, that, that, that office just became, became exalted to me. That these are appointed ministers in the church to serve the poor. To serve the poor. This is super helpful to me. Okay, Their job is glorious. Their job is glorious. And this is a big deal. They, dis they manage the distribution of the church's resources. And this means that they're involved with holy work for Jesus. So this is not service broad in general. This is driving this thing in to a tip of a spear. They have a very specific role and a very specific job in the church. Think about this. Think about this. This is encouraging to me. The poor and the needy. The poor and the needy. And you see this in Galatians 2? When, when, uh, when Paul went to the Jerusalem church and, and Peter told him, he said, only remember the poor. That's all I ask you. And Paul said, the very thing I was eager to do already. 
And so you see that, that framework throughout the New Testament that remembering the poor is very important to God. It's very important to God. In fact, it's so important to God that He designed an office in His church to ensure, to make sure that the needs of His people were met. That the needs of the poor of His people were met. Okay? This is so important to God that He makes this office a perpetual office in the church of Jesus to ensure that the poor are cared for. So, when we have a temptation to downplay deacons, number one, two things, one of two things is going on, maybe both. Number one, we do not understand the ministry that they have been appointed to. If we don't understand that, we'll downplay it. Or, number two, you don't understand how, how much God loves the poor, how committed God is to the poor. One of those two things are happening when we downplay their role. I'll give you some definitions here. Deacons, let's just, say, let's just say everything that we put together, let's just say it in a simple way. Let's just define it. Deacons, this is a glorious role. Deacons are the church's corporate response to the needy. When we say corporate response, we don't mean that deacons do everything and we do nothing. Even more than we mean me and Ryan teach in front of the church on Sunday, but you don't have a, a, a responsibility to teach the Word of God according to Matthew 28. We all teach, and there's a special appointed teachers in the church. You understand that? We all serve. We all meet the needs of the poor and needy. But this is so important to God that He institutes and creates an office in His church. Their job is the corporate, they're the corporate response of the church to the needy. And the thing that happened in my mind that I'm hoping happens in some of yours is one of the ways that it got downplayed in my mind is I knew the word meant servant. And so in my mind, I attached their role to just catch all servants in the body of Christ. Just general servants in the body of Christ. You need something done? The deacons are your man. They're going to do it. They're the ones that do the stuff that nobody else wants to do in the church. Okay, But they're not catch-all servants in general. They're very specific focused, appointed servants in a narrow sense. Okay, They're not errand boys in the local church. They're not pastor's assistants. They're not secretaries. They're ministers of mercy filled with the Holy Spirit, ministering in the name of Christ. They're extending the mercy of God to the needy. Okay, It's glorious. It's a glorious role in the church. Just like missionaries sent out, they're the missionary arm of the local church. These men are the compassion arm, corporate compassion arm of the local church that reach out and lay hold of the needy. This is a glorious thing in the church of Jesus. This is, this is the centralized and corporate response of the church to the poor. Ministers of mercy. This is glorious. I pray that that encourages you this morning. That's what we're going towards as a local church. And what we see in Scripture is what happened in, in this church at Jerusalem. It began to be replicated by other churches. Okay, This model was replicated. They appointed, churches began to appoint men to oversee their ministry of mercy. I want you to think about this. First Timothy, that's been called the, the church order letter. I think Ryan called it that just a couple of weeks ago. And, and it makes a lot of sense because more than any other book in the New Testament, First Timothy orders the local church. First Timothy 3.15, he tells us, I'm writing you these things. This is the purpose statement of the letter. So that you will know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. He's ordering local churches in 1 Timothy. Well, think about this. In the church order letter, 
A major portion of 1 Timothy assumes that a properly organized church will have a plurality of overseers and deacons in place. Okay, did you catch that? A major thrust of the church order letter assumes that if your church is properly organized, you will have a plurality of deacons in place. This is not an optional thing. This is not icing on the cake. This is part of the church of Jesus. This is a perpetual office. Okay, It's permanent and perpetual. And we, as a local church, we need to respond to these truths. We need to put some things in order that are not in order yet. There are some things that we... I want to encourage you with this. If you've had some thoughts... In this way of we as a church could do better in this realm of mercy ministry. I want to encourage you with this. Part of the reason why we're not doing as as much as we could, as efficiently as we could, is we're not ordered in such a way to do these things. So we're going to respond to these truths in Scripture. There's a reason why God tells us to set these things up. You understand that? Okay. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because now the question is, we know who these men are. We know what these men are supposed to be doing. We know how important this office is to God. So the question now is, what kinds of people should we be looking for to fill this office? Okay, What kinds of people should we be looking for to fill this office? And God doesn't leave us to wander in the fog on this. God gives us qualifications for these men. That's how important He deems this office and, and it makes sense to you in light of what we just read. Like, why all these qualifications if their only job is to do stuff that nobody else wants to do? Okay? They are, they are ministers of Jesus in His church, and that's why you have these qualifications. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verses 8 through 13. These are the qualifications. 1 Timothy chapter, eight, chapter 3, verse 8 through 13 says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, these are the authoritative standards that God lays out for this office in His church. These are not optional. Okay, these are qualifications. These are what these deacons must be. So I want to use those qualifications and I, would just, I want to just categorize them in some heads. And the first one is this. These are the types of people we're looking for. Okay, A deacon, number one, a deacon must be qualified by a dignified life. And you get that from verse 8. Must, a deacon must be dignified. Your version might say reverence. And what this means is that this person, this is a serious man. Okay, He is serious. He lives his life on purpose. He doesn't float through life on accident. He lives his life with such focus and such seriousness that it causes other people around him to respect him. 
Okay? He must be that type of man. This, this corresponds, if you remember back in Acts 6, this corresponds with the qualification that they gave for, for the servants in Acts 6. They must be men of good reputation. They have to be considered men of good reputation. These deacons have to have the church's honor and their trust. Okay? Their honor and their trust. The following three phrases describe what this dignified life will not look like. Okay? It doesn't give us what it will look like. It gives us what it won't look like. So let's walk through these three. First, an honorable man's life, a dignified man's life, it will not look like a double-tongued man. He will not be double-tongued. Okay? That means that a deacon's yes must be his yes and his no must be his no. And you think back to Act 6 of what was happening. Whoever was distributing resources in Act 6 was saying one thing to one set of deacons and saying one thing to another set of deacons. That's called double tongue. That's partiality. That's condemned in these verses. Okay? And also what's condemned is a man that says he'll do one thing and doesn't follow through with what he says he'll do. Those types of men are disqualified from serving in this way. The church has to have confidence that these men are going to do what they say they're going to do. Okay? This is a qualification. Number two, a dignified man's life, an honorable man's life, it will not look like this. He will not be addicted to too much wine. Okay? He will not be given to too much wine. And I want you to notice how carefully that that's worded. That is carefully worded, is it not? That verse does not say that uh, a dignified man, an honorable man can't drink wine. It doesn't say that. So God doesn't forbid honorable, honorable, dignified men from drinking wine in this verse. He doesn't. Okay, But God demands in this verse that His people be sober. Okay, That His people be sober men. That's the type of men that you want serving as deacons. We want. I thought about Ephesians 5. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The men that they appointed in Acts 6 were full of the Holy Spirit. They weren't full of alcohol. Okay, We need men like this overseeing this ministry in this church. Not addicted to too much wine. And then the third is this. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Not greedy for dishonest gain. And that ought to make perfect sense to you in light of what we just looked at. Why in the world would it be a qualification for a deacon not to be greedy? Okay? Because they're handling money. Okay? They are, they, in Act 6, they are distributing massive amounts of resources. They are serving in such a way that requires very much trust. Very much trust from the church. And the sad reality is this. It is a sad reality that some people steal. Okay? That's, that is not a foreign thing. Some people steal from churches. Okay? God knows that. God knows that reality. And He gives us this qualification that deacons, the ones who serve in this way, they cannot be men that are greedy for gain, that they love money. Okay? Deacons are called to serve the poor and the needy, not to, not to help themselves from the money bag like Judas. You understand? Okay. They cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. And then let's look at the second heading. A deacon must be qualified by sound doctrine. And I'm getting that from the phrase, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Okay? They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This means that these men, they must have firm personal convictions in orthodox Christian doctrine. Okay? And this, again, this elevates this office. These men are not welfare workers. 
Okay? They are not, they are not handing out in a cold way, in a detached way. They are not handing out raw resources. They are serving the poor in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. These men have to be able to defend, hold to, articulate sound doctrine. They have to hold to sound doctrines about Christ with a clear conscience. And you see this in Acts 6. The, the, the men that they appointed in Acts 6, the next picture you get of these men later in Acts 6, one of them named Stephen, is ferociously preaching the gospel. Okay? And what this means is the type of men that we need to appoint to this role are not just nice men, not just gifted men, but godly men. Men that love Christ. Men that want to minister in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It is very popular in our generation, in this culture, to go after social action apart from evangelism and mission. And you saw that already in the church of Jerusalem. These things are married, These things are married together. Okay? We want men in this position that are able to articulate the gospel. Okay? And I think that this corresponds with that, with that qualification back in Acts 6 that you want men full of wisdom. Okay? You want men full of wisdom. You want men that can, that can grab hold of the Word of God. And the reason why I think that's so important okay, is when we talk about serving the poor and the needy, there's a whole boatload of problems that comes with trying to, trying to minister in this way. Okay? And, here, and here, here's what I'm saying. Our goal as a local church is not to get rid of money. Do you understand that? That is not our goal as a local church. If that were our goal, we could do that real quick. Real quick. We don't need men full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom to get rid of money. Okay? That is not our goal. Our goal is to minister in the name of Jesus. And we need men with a firm grip on the Word of God that understand the pitfalls that come with helping people. Okay? These need to be the kinds of men that can take wisdom from the Word of God and apply it to these situations to know what to do. In difficult situations, they need to be men full of wisdom, full of the mystery of the faith, the doctrines about Christ established in the Word of God. Okay? Our role is we're in a stewardship from God. This is not a welfare. This is a stewardship from God. Minister in the name of Jesus. So we need men who know the Word in this role. He must have a sound doctrine. Let's go to the third heading. A deacon must be qualified by a well-managed family. And this is something that you see in overseers too. And, and the principle is this. That the way a man manages his family will be the way a man manages his task and his duties in the church. It's evidence. It gives you evidence of how this man will discharge his duties. Okay? So the command here, the demand here from God is that he must, he, must be a, he must manage his family well. Now let me say this. I believe that this passage does assume that deacons will be married. But I do not believe that it requires for deacons to be married. Okay? If they are married, these things must be in place. If they're not married, we as the church, because these things are evidence of His fitness for the office, if they're not married, we as a local church, we have to dig all the more. We have to dig all the more in the types of men that we're appointing in this way. Same with overseers. Same with overseers. So let's dig into this first one. Okay? He must be a faithful husband. And the phrase that it uses there is, he must be the husband of one wife. And that word, that, that phrase there is literally, he must be a one-woman man. He must be a one 
woman, man. This does not just mean that he's married to one person, that he doesn't have multiple wives. Okay? This is digging into the purity of this man. This is digging into his purity. He must be a one-woman man. And what that means, that there are no other women in his life romantically. None. Not even an iota. Physically, emotionally, mentally, there's none. There is none. Every ounce of his heart in this realm, in this way, is terminated towards his bride. He's a faithful husband to his wife. And that means that his heart is locked up like Fort Knox. This is not the type of man that likes to flirt with other women, share inappropriate details, have, have personal conversations, inappropriate conversations with other women. He is a one-woman man. And I wonder if there's anybody here that just needs a reminder of that this morning. That is the standard of God for every husband in this room. That your affections terminate on your bride. On your bride. Okay? One woman, man. But, look at verse 11. So he must be the husband of one wife. But verse 11 also lays down qualifications for this man's wife. Okay? His wife is to live a respectable life for Christ. Just like he is. He, he lives a dignified life. Other people look in and they respect this man. His wife must live the same type of life. And what this does mean, has to mean at least this. Okay? That some men are not going to be able to serve in this role because their wives are not going to fit these qualifications. These are qualifications. They're standards. Okay? She must be respectable the same way that he is. And then I want, to, I want to pull out just one of those. And it's the qualification of not a slanderer. Not a slanderer. I want you to think about that. Number one, first... This really is a beautiful picture of what God designed in this office. Is He wants a husband and a wife going at it together. Okay? Side by side for the faith of the gospel. They're both pursuing Christ and they're both ministering in the name of Jesus to the needy. That's a beautiful picture in a marriage. Okay? And then you have this qualification, not a slanderer. And I just want to, I just want you to tell you to think about that. Okay? That these men that are called to minister to the needy, there is some really difficult, nasty situations that these men are going to minister right in the middle of. And that's what they're called to do. That's what they're filled with the Holy Spirit to do. Okay, They're not looking for clean situations. They're looking for situations to minister in the name of Christ. And what that means is that they're going to be exposed to private details of people's lives. Okay, They're going to know things about people that are not as public. And what that means is that there's going to be a temptation with this office and with church leadership to say more than what you're supposed to say. Okay? These, there's supposed to be a measure of guardedness in the speech of this man and this woman because of the type things that they're supposed to be immersed in. I want to quickly mention this. I don't have time to dive into this. Okay? So I'm going to hit this quick. And if you have questions about this, I want to answer them later. In verse 11... The Greek word for wives is the same Greek word for women. There is no different Greek word for wives than women. It's the same word. Okay, So many Bible interpreters take this Greek word behind wives in verse 11 and interpret it to mean that women can be appointed deacons in the local church and called deaconesses. Okay. And there are some very, there, there's some flaming liberals that go that route. And that's, and that's one thing. But there are some very solid Bible teachers that teach that and that believe that. Okay? And there's reasons, textual reasons of why they say that. One, 
is in Romans 16.1, there's a lady named Phoebe, and she is called the same word in the local church at Rome. The question there, is she called this in the, in, in the official office sense or in that second sense as a servant of God? Okay, that's an interpretive issue. Okay, the second thing that I'll point out here is that there's qualifications that are laid down for deacons' wives that are not laid down for elders' wives. And so that, to some people, that seems strange. Why are deacons' wives held to a higher standard than overseers' wives? Okay, so I am very sympathetic to that position. I understand how people that love the Bible get there. Okay, just honestly, I'm very sympathetic to that position, but I lean a little bit the other direction. Okay, I think that it is odd for verse 10 to be about deacons, for verse 11 to be about female deacons, and verse 12 to go back to male deacons, ordering their household. I think that would be odd. Okay, But I do want to at least flag you that there's some interpre interpretive differences there. Okay, A lot of people say that women should be serving women. And I understand that. I understand the pragmatics of that. In Acts chapter 6, there were widows, women, and men were appointed to serve these women. Okay, so I lean in this direction, but I'm sympathetic to the other direction. If you have any questions about that, please ask me. We're moving straight past it. All right? All right. Verse 12 reminds us that this man must be a good father. He must be a good father. And the question here is, how does he manage his children? Does he manage them well? Does he love his kids? Does he teach his kids? Does he instruct his kids? Does he spend time with his kids and love his kids? Does he discipline his kids? Does he have some sort of authority that he, is, that he is using in his home for the good of his home? Is he a good father? Is he managing his children well? And then notice this in verse, 11, verse 12, managing his children and his household. Okay, and you're thinking like, well, you got the wives covered and the children. Like, who's that? Okay, The household, managing the household well. In this culture, sometimes in certain families that this word household could include household servants. Okay? And that this, these service will be in this man's charge. And so I think it is appropriate from this that we consider how a man is discharging his duties in his vocation in this world. When he goes to work for 40 hours plus every week, is he a lazy man or is he a diligent man? Does he honor Christ at his work or does he dishonor Christ at his work? I believe that this weighs in on this man's fitness to serve in this way. And it gives you evidence. Is this man going to discharge his duties faithfully to Christ and appointed to this office? So these are the types of men. Okay, These are the qualifications. These are the types of men that we as a local church want to appoint to this office. Now, I want to lay out the process that we're going to go after. Okay, We're going to initiate the process today, but I want to lay it out for the next several months of what we're going to go after. We are going to respond to this teaching on deacons beginning today. Okay? We're going to, we are not going to respond in haste, but we are going to respond today. And, and here's how we're going to do it. In Acts 6, the leaders told the church, the leaders told the church to select for themselves seven qualified men for the task. Y'all remember that? So the leaders of the church set the number, and then the qualifications are spelled out in the Word of God. Okay? And what you see there is you see both the leadership and the congregation involved in this process. And this is what we're going after. We want to model, we want to mimic and model that process and how we proceed. So this is the approach that we want to take. Okay? This is the approach. We are asking you as a church to select three. That's a plurality. Okay? That's just a good plural number. Three. We are asking you as a church to select three qualified men to this task. 
three qualified men to this task. So this is, this is what we're going to do. The first step in this process, okay, is we are going to, you're going to leave this place today, and we are going to encourage you to seek the face of God. And everything that we just laid out, you think about what this could mean for Grace Community Church. Okay, We want to be known as a local church that, that fills this city up with the gospel of Jesus. To the point to where we're overflowing from this city to the nations. We prayed that from the very beginning. In the same breath. We want to be known as a ch local church that is marked by radical generosity. Okay? So I want you to leave this place and I want you to seek the face of God, asking God for some light about men that you see qualified and gifted to serve in this office. Okay? Who do you see that would fit these qualifications and fit this role well? There is no pressure for us for you to send us a name. If you don't have a name, please don't send us a name. Okay? No pressure for this. This is not everybody has to do something. But I do want you to take this seriously because of this reason. This is your money. This is your resources. You are given this as a stewardship to your local church. And so, who do you want stewarding these resources for the highest and best use? Qualified men. Take this very serious. Okay? To the glory of Christ. So, we are going, over the next two weeks, we are going to collect names from members of this church. And I want you to be, you are free to send us up to three names. Okay, so you can send us one name, you can send us two names, you can send us three names, you can send us no names. Okay, you're free to send us up to ten, and, and over the next two weeks we're going to collect these names. Then what are we going to do? We're going to do verse 10 of 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3. We're going to test them. We're, we're going to enter into a testing phase, and we're going to do what we just did. Okay, we're going we're gonna to use the Bible and walk through that process. We're, we're going to examine family. We're going to examine doctrine. We're going to examine giftings. We're going to examine lifestyles. And this will take as long as it needs to take. We're in, we're in no hurry to, to be hasty to, to appoint uh, men in this role fast. We're not. We're not okay? we're, we have no plans to drag out this process, but this will take as long as it needs to take. So two weeks to gather names, and then we will enter into a testing phase. And when we enter into that testing phase, we will have a chance to put these names before the body and to hear from you regarding these men. Affirmations, concerns, all this will be private, okay? But we will, you will have a chance to give feedback regarding these men. And then after this testing phase, we as a local church will appoint, will vote to appoint these men to office. That's the process that we're going after, okay? And the reason that we, we went about this the way that we did is I, what we've been asking God to do is to exalt this in your mind and in your heart. Okay? We want to be known in this way as radically generous, reaching out and meeting needs in the name of Jesus. Okay? That's the process we're going to follow. This is how we're going to put things in order that we're lacking. And we know, we know this. As a local church, we can grow in this area. Anybody think we're perfect in this area? Okay? No. We can grow in this area. We can grow a lot in this area as a local church. We're going to put things in order that are lacking. And I'll point out something. This is very encouraging to me. Back in Acts 6. Immediately, after they put deacons in place to care for the, full, for the poor, you know what happened? It, it, it's like poured fire on the mission of Christ in Jerusalem. So I want to read this verse to you. Acts 6, verse 7. 
This is immediately after they laid hands and appointed these men. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's what this does. It demonstrates the gospel. It adds validity to the gospel. And so we speak about Jesus and then we demonstrate Him in the way that we care for the poor and the needy. And you saw what that did in, in Acts 6 in Jerusalem. Is that it was, they were already growing. They were increasing in verse 1. And then they began to, to multiply rapidly in verse 7. And that's what we're praying that God would do in this church. That He would use the mercy ministry of this church to demonstrate His gospel. To demonstrate His gospel. That's what we're going after. We want to be a church that is like Jesus. That looks like our Lord. That looks like our Lord. And He was the greatest deacon of all time. The greatest deacon of all time. Let's go to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I tell you that... Start over. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant, a diaconos, to the, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So I want you to rewind in your mind about an hour ago. And we stand in the presence of God and we are singing praise to this Christ and this God that has exalted Himself in our life, not just as the Creator, but as the Redeemer. He's plucked us as brands from the fire. Okay? And we stand as Gentiles, as the nations, and we're glorifying God. We're filled with praise to God. And that verse tells you why. We are glorifying God because Jesus became a servant. Because Jesus came and He served us. Jesus came and He served us. And we want to be like Christ. We want to take the same service and mercy that He has shown to us. And we want to bend it out to this world. One more verse. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that verse really does teach us that we, we are living and breathing and drawing breath in this world not to be served. We are existing right now not to be served, just like Jesus. Okay, it is, we, we exist not to be served, but to serve, just like our Lord. Okay, You have breath in your lungs to become like Christ and become a servant in this world. And this is what we're going after. Servants just like Jesus. So... Local church, this is what we want to be known for. A local church, Grace Community Church, Jackson, Mississippi, they're zealous to speak of Christ. They're zealous to preach the gospel of Jesus. And that same group is full of zeal, full of zeal to show Christ and to demonstrate mercy in His name to the most needy in this world. To lay hold of the poor and the needy. To speak of Jesus, to speak for Christ, and to show Him. Okay, Mission and mercy. This is what we're going after. So we're about to have a minute and we're going to pray. And I would encourage you to pray over the coming weeks that God would put His hand on this. That God would put His hand on what we're going after. We as a local church, we are leaning into God's wisdom. 
Okay, God designed this office. We did not. And so we're leaning into the wisdom of God and we want to lean in and ask God, God, do what you designed to do in this church. God, help us as a local church to funnel our resources in a way that brings you the most glory. The most glory. Demonstrate your gospel in this world. So let's pray. Let's pray. God, we come to you today. And Lord, we, we remember, Lord Jesus, that we are your disciples called by your name. And that means, Lord, that we want to follow you, Lord. We want every detail in our lives, God, to be oriented around what you say, not what we think, Lord. We want to, we want to order our entire lives, Lord, under your authoritative truth. And Lord, we just pray this as a local church, God. We do, Lord. We do just what I said, God. We lean into your wisdom. You are wiser than we are, Lord. You are wiser than we are. And God, in the midst of a culture of greed, Lord, we pray that you put your hand on us, God, and that you would demonstrate radical generosity in your body, in your church. Lord, show this world that you are more worthy to be loved and served than money. God, show this world that. Show them your glory, Lord Jesus. That you are the treasure in the field. That you are worth losing all just to have, just to follow, just to pursue. God, exalt yourself. Exalt your supreme value in this church. And God, we ask, Lord, that you would bring about your servants that you would have to serve in this way among us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.